0: When I was when I was in elementary school, I, I looked pretty normal. I mean, besides the fact I was Korean, uh, I was I was just a small small Korean kid. But I was relatively thin. You know, I was pretty athletic. I wasn't um, I wasn't slow. I was uh, coordinated to a certain degree. But when I entered in middle school. I ate too many hot Cheetos. I, I just ate way too many. I, I, I it was it was something where I ate hot Cheetos every single day and I didn't understand that, you know, that eating chips and junk food made you fat or made you like like get chubby. So if you look even the progressions of when I was in elementary school um, into middle school, I got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I basically became very, very round. Um, But I didn't realize, I didn't realize that I was, I was gaining weight. I thought I was still this very like athletic little kid who could run around all day and play. I developed asthma. It was very hard for me to breathe and it was, it was, it was very difficult. And so I remember I tried out for our middle school's flag football team. And I, I tried out, and and I, again in my head I was like, I'm not, I'm not even chubby. I'm, 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 I'm fit. I'm, I'm ready to to play. And I remember they asked, um, you know, what position do you want to play? I was like, I want to play cornerback. You know, I want to play defense. I want to, want run real fast. And that that tryout, I got burned every play. And it's because I was, I was really slow. And and again, it was, it kind of started hitting me like maybe. I honestly blamed it because I was like, it's because I'm short. That's why. That's why I didn't make the team. It's because I'm, I'm small and I wasn't good enough um, because my height. So I kind of blamed my parents. I was like, you're not tall enough. Like, I'm, my genes are bad. But I remember there was actually a very formative experience that happened. And in our school, we, we had to do PE and we had to run laps. Uh, and and our, the field that we had was a half-mile field. And so you would run twice to uh, get your lap time. And... I remember starting to run, you know, you're going at a pace, and I got a little tired, and so I would start walking a little bit, and I would be wheezing, and I would, I would try to run a little bit more. And I remember um, I would start to fall, like, very far behind. And then I remember, you know, this group of, of, of very athletic boys would lap me, and they would, they would go faster than me, and they would kind of look, look back, and I would be like, oh, I'll get there, you know, just catch my breath. You know, and I, then I began to realize, like, man, I'm not very good at this it was kind of like humiliating in certain ways. It was like, I'm not really good at sports. And I, I remember in middle school, because I was, I was you know, chubby and overweight, it was, I was like, I'm just gonna stay away from sports because there's too much pain um, in doing things that you're not, you're not the best at, you're not good at, you're not decent at. So I, I remember I focused a lot on my studies because it, doesn't, it didn't matter how bad I was at sports. Like I knew I could get better grades than the people next to me. And so at least in that way that I could succeed and I, I had the ability to be better. And I, I, I learned over time, and I'm sure even the kids would learn, I'm sure you've learned that there's a tendency that we, we focus on our strengths and we stray away from our weaknesses. Things that we're not good at, we just kind of put in a corner and we're like, I know I'm not very good at it, but at least I'm good at this. At least I can do this well. So I'm going to focus my life on doing the things I do well and, and making sure that the weak, the stuff I'm weak in, the stuff I'm not good in, that I'm never going to touch it. I'm never going to go near it. And, and you kind of learn. and You kind of teach people that this is the way that life goes. So you're not going to be good at everything, so just do what you're good at. Do what you succeed at. And, 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 and this is the kind of mentality that we have, even here in the church. You know, I, I joke with my wife, with Grace, I tell her, you know, if I'm deathly ill, if I'm really sick, you're going to have to come up here and preach. And so sometimes um, on Sunday mornings, uh, and maybe some of you don't know my wife, but um, on Sunday mornings, I, I tell her, I'm like, oh, I'm not feeling too well. Like, Grace, do you want to preach this week? And, and, and she's a very reserved, and she's very, um, you know, she's, she's just my wife, but um, she's, she does not like public speaking, so she always is like, if you ever do that to me, I'm going to kill you. And it's like, it's this, it's this she's, she's like, there's no way I would do that. And I, I realize it's because she doesn't, um, like that's not her comfort zone. So she doesn't want to get out of her comfort zone in that way. I'm saying this, um, knowing that there is one day she will preach. There is one day she will, she will speak in front of all you. And I hope you know when that happens, um, it is her worst nightmare. It is her worst fear, uh, to do that. But I think what ends up happening a lot of times is even when it comes to preaching, I love preaching. It's what I'm good at. It's what I like to do. Um, it's it's, it's, what, it's what gets me going. And so I lean into that. And so there's a lot of areas in church and ministry where there are things that you don't want to do. And so you just kind of put that on the side. And it's like, ah, I'm just going to put that off for later. I'm just going to stick to what I'm good at and hone in on that and become excellent at it. When I read the Bible, when I read about Jesus, it's very convicting because I realize a lot of times what I've made gospel in my life is what culture has taught me, is what society has taught me. When I read the words of Jesus, what he says about it, it's very different. See, in our culture, in in, in, I think just humanity, just people, not even just American culture, in just any culture, we value success. We value strength. We, 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 We praise people who are strong. We praise people who are talented, who have ability and in many ways we ostracize and put people on the side who are weak and unable not talented the ones who are pretty and beautiful and, and smart outgoing the ones who are in the forefront the ones who who look the parts that those are the ones we're like hey you should you should be the ones who are on display you're the ones who need to be leaders you're the ones who need to be on the forefront cuz you're strong you're smart you're good but if you know you have a sordid past, if you're, if you're not the best, if you're not, if you're not polished, if you're not, if you're not all the things that that need to, to look right, you know what, maybe you should serve in a different way. Maybe you should kind of be put in the corner and do the background things because you know what? We need the leaders in the front. The Bible makes it very clear that God uses the weak, not the strong. The Bible makes it really clear God uses the foolish things of this world. And it's under this understanding that God is interested in using the weak and the humble that is counterintuitive, it's illogical, it doesn't make sense. It's not something that should go well with you and be like, of course God uses the weak, of course, of course God uses the humble and the meek, of course God uses the ones who aren't able, that's God. It, it doesn't really make sense. You would assume God is using the ones who are talented, who are strong, who are able. God wants to use the insignificance. God wants to use the lowly. God wants to use the small. Today, our passage is in in conjunction with this series about the prophecies of Jesus. And we we find it in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And in, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from days, is from of old, from ancient days. This is the prophecy that, that prophesies that the Savior, the Messiah, will be born in the city called Bethlehem. This tiny, insignificant little city. The only other time, I mean, really, the only other claim to fame that Bethlehem has is the fact that King David was born in Bethlehem. This small, tiny little town that really had not, not a lot of amenities, not a lot of things going on. It, it's, it's so tiny that really even in the old ancient maps, and you look up Bethlehem, you're not really going to find it unless it's a very detailed map because it's not like Jerusalem. It's not like the major cities where, where it's not like Samaria. It's not like these these regions that are important and powerful. It's not like Babylon. It's not like these these places in Persia. These these great cities. It's this tiny little hamlet. This tiny little village. So so the prophet Micah, and he's prophesying, he's explaining, he's like, Oh, Bethlehem, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you is going to come a ruler. From you is going to come the Savior of the world. From you, this Messiah is going to be brought out. And again, I'm sure people read this and are like, wow, this is so specific. God is using this very specific place to bring about the ruler because this small insignificant place is where King David was born. I, I think, though, that there's a little bit more to it. I think there's even a lesson in the reason why Jesus was born in Bethlehem is not just because King David was born there, and, and it's not just because of that. I, I believe, and I'm, I'm, I'm really through, through this digestion of, of God's word, I believe God chose Bethlehem to be the place where Jesus was born because it was small and insignificant. Because it wasn't the city center. Because it wasn't the metropolitan area. Because it wasn't a place where you would expect a king to be born. That's why God chose Bethlehem as the place where Jesus was born. God does not want, God does not desire to use the strong. God desires to use the weak. God does not desire to use the large and mighty. He desires to use the small and insignificant. And I, 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 I'm learning this even in the words of Jesus. And the next passage I want to read to us is found in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. And it's, it's this very fun story. And it, it, it may not be fun for you, but it's fun for me. But it's, it's a very fun story where you have... Um, you have James and John, I mean basically they call them the sons of Zebedee, but uh, James and John are, are two of Jesus' disciples, and, and they're, they're up there, you know, they're, they're one of those people that they're following Jesus in his ministry, it's Matthew 20, so it's kind of in the later parts, later years of Jesus' ministry, they've seen Jesus do all these miracles, they know he's, he's God, they know, they believe he is the Savior of the world, but they're doing what, you know, what a lot of us do a lot of times, is that as they're in Jesus' ministry, um, they're, they're in the top 12 of, of, I mean, they're in the disciple, they're in the, that major, large group, and they're, and they're having a conversation with their mom. You know, they're going, they're going mom, um, yeah, so, uh, you know, or uh, let's put it this way, their mom is probably asking them, so so how's life, you know, how, how's everything going? And they're like, hey, you know, uh, I'm, in, I'm in Jesus' top 12. And, and, you know, the mom is probably like our mom's. Only the top 12? Come on. You can do better than that. And, and James and John are probably like, but mom, like, he doesn't have rankings. Like, we're all equal. Like, he loves us all very much. James, John, come on. Top 12? You can at least do top 5. Let me go talk to Jesus. Let me, I'll, I'll go talk to him for him. So this is, the, this is the scenario. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, it says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, She was probably dragging them along. And kneeling before him, before Jesus, she asked him for something. And when he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they, the brothers, and they said to him, we are able, we're able to do it. Jesus said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand, at my left hand, is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, the other the other of the twelve disciples, they were indignant at they were mad at the two brothers. What Jesus is doing in this scenario is he's using this, this, this conversation that he's having with James and John's mom about them wanting to be at his right and left hand, to be the, the, the head honcho of the disciples. Jesus explained this is the way the Gentiles work. This is the way the world works, is that they lord authority and title and position, strength and power over each other. That if you're in leadership, the way it works is that I'm in charge, you listen to me. And so James and John's mom understood this. And she went to Jesus and said, Jesus, you know, when we're in your kingdom, could you please put my son at your right hand, which is a position of power and authority, put John at your left hand. You know, let these two guys, my sons, be, be the ones who are higher of importance. And as soon as, they, as, soon as the mom does this, and, and, and Jesus says, are they able to drink the cup that, I, that I'm, I'm going to drink? The cup that Jesus is talking about is the cup of suffering. This cup of pain. This cup of sacrifice. And the two brothers ignorantly say, yes, we are. We're Of course we're able to drink of the cup. I, I think that they were assuming that the cup wasn't this kind of responsibility. I think they were assuming this cup was, was the, the weight of the pressure of leadership. I, mean, I think they were, they were like, okay, he's talking not about sacrifice. He's talking about all the burden that comes with leading people. Oh, we're ready. We're ready to take that. We're ready to, to lead people because we want to be in this position of authority. And the other 10 disciples, the ones who are on the side, they're mad because they're like, we didn't know that you're allowed to ask Jesus if, if we could be on his right and left hand. Like, I'm sure Peter's, you know, Peter being Peter was probably sitting on the sideline being like, man, I should have asked him last week. Like, you know, like they're mad at him. And Jesus takes this opportunity to talk to all of them. He brings them close. He says, this is the way the Gentiles work. The Gentiles are always looking for a promotion. They're always looking for for a better title, better position, more power, more authority. They're looking to get strong. They're looking to to be served. Because they think that if you're in leadership, that it's about being served. Jesus makes it really clear. He says, in my kingdom, if you want to be like me, if you want to be on the top, you have to be on the bottom. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's a, it's a kingdom in which the king has come down to die for you. Not the, the, the servants, the ones below you, the ones who are following you aren't meant to die for the king. It's the opposite. In this kingdom, the king dies for the servants. So if you want to be a leader, you need to die for your servants. You need to lay down your life for those who are, you, you are leading. What I see in Jesus, what I see in his ministry. I feel that there has been a misconnection and a misconception when it comes to the church. Being a pastor, being being someone who speaks, I hear this all the time. I don't want you to feel guilty because I hear it all the time. But when it comes to sharing your faith with someone else, to someone else, when it comes to inviting someone to your home and talking to things that are spiritual, to, to leading a Bible study or to, to leading a small group, to, to doing things in the church. I hear this so often. Is I'm not trained. So I don't have enough knowledge. I don't, I don't have enough to do these things. I'm not a pastor. I can't preach. So how can I share? How can I, how can I serve? How could I do any of these things? Because I, I don't know. I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not ready. In God's kingdom, humility, in God's kingdom, humility is far better than ability. In God's kingdom, humility is of greater value than ability. But many times in the church, many times in life, because it's natural for us, we desire ability over humility. The people that we choose and we tap to be the leader, to be the ones who are in charge, are not the humble they're the able. It's, it's the ones that, it's, it makes total sense for you to serve because you, you are exactly what we're looking for because you are able in all these ways. What God is explaining to James and John here is that, is that it's not about that. It's not about what looks right or what is right on top, on, on the outside. What really God needs is servants. And let me explain to you. A servant who thinks they can do everything, who thinks that they're better in every way is no longer a servant, but they desire to be the master. They want to be the one who's in charge, who's calling the shots. They're the kind of servant that when their boss tells them to do something, they're like, man, my boss is so stupid. Do they not know what I'm able to do? A good servant is not the one who's saying, I know what should be done. The good servant is the one who says, my my master is telling me what to do. And you know what? Maybe I do or, or don't know how to do this. But the only reason why I'm doing this is not because I think it's right. It's because my master thinks it's right. Too often, when it comes to ministry, we value the able rather than the humble. I want to make it really clear, in our church, we desire the humble. You may feel ill-equipped, you may feel unable, you may feel like you're not talented, you're not strong, you're not good enough. But I guarantee you, because God is the one who is calling you, God is the one who is leading you, God is the one who is speaking to you. And if you have the heart of a willing servant, God will help you accomplish what he's called you to do, because he's a good master because he's a good master, he won't call you to do something that is out of your ability because he's the one who is empowering you. But I think what's happened so often in the church is instead of hearing God's calling and being humble in our obedience to it, we say, I don't really care what God is calling me to do. I know what I'm able to do, and so I'm going to serve in that way. I'm going to do what I want to do, and so this ministry is going to look the way that I want it to look. It's going to do what I want it to do, and so you know, God, I know You're the king and I praise you because you're the savior, but let me sit on the throne for a little bit. Let me decide what what, what is supposed to be done. Because you know what? My opinion is pretty it's pretty good. My authority is pretty strong. People are gonna listen to what I have to say. Which leads me back to to Bethlehem. When I I read Bethlehem, there's actually a a strong correlation I feel between Bethlehem and, and Mary the mother of Jesus. See, Bethlehem was this small, insignificant, tiny little city, and Mary was this small, insignificant, tiny woman. She was about 13 years old when when the Holy Spirit came to her and told her that she was going to to be be pregnant with the, the Savior of the world. And what I see between Bethlehem and Mary that is so strikingly similar is that neither of them were very important. Neither of them were very significant. I mean, she's this teenage girl, and, and, and yes, she's in the line of David, but it's not like she was royalty. It wasn't like she was in high position. It wasn't like her parents were in politics. It wasn't like any of that. It was more she was a very humble girl from a very, from a very you know, st- standard background. But God chose her. And it's in her response, in Mary's response to when the Holy Spirit visits her and says that the, the the Savior of the world is going to be in your womb, Mary's response is, oh no, 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 I can't do it. I'm only 13. Her response is, oh no, 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 I can't do it. I'm i, I I'm just I'm just not I'm not ready. I, I, don't, I don't want it. Her response was, I am your humble servant. Do what you want. Her response wasn't this constant rejection of of, no God, no God, no God. I'm not, I'm only 13 years old. Like, what are we talking about? The savior of the world is going to be birthed through me. I'm not even married. Like, that's crazy, that's nonsense. Mary's response is, 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 is humility. Is she felt God's presence. And she said, Lord, I'm but your humble servant. And then through Mary, through Mary came our Savior. Through this small, tiny, insignificant woman came our Savior. In this small, insignificant city came our Savior. In you. When we talk about miracles, like legitimate miracles, like wow, the only way this happened is because of God. And we feel like we don't see them in our lives today. I think a reason is because we've become far too self-sufficient. See, God only uses the weak. He only uses the humble. He doesn't use the strong. He just chooses not to. So I think back in the day, especially when Jesus was around, they saw miracles all the time because they understood that it was all from God. It wasn't because they were so smart, they were so educated, technology was so good, that that's why, that's why th- miracles happen. They understood that these miracles happen because God is the one who's doing it. To a, such an insignificant and, and, and really relatively meaningless person like myself, God chose to love me. God chose to show me in this way. So they experienced miracles. I think in our day and age, we look at ourselves and we're like, I'm, I'm not that powerless. I'm very powerful. I'm able to do so much. I'm able to make sure that all the things are in a line. And so really, I would love a miracle from God. I would love for him to show up. But if in case God doesn't show up, just in case that uh, he doesn't do the miracle that he needs to do, I think I got it relatively under control. I have my life set where I'll survive. And I hear that a lot. I'm I'm not condemning anyone in here. I'm hearing that a lot these days, though. When it comes to these moments where we really should be on our hands and our knees, asking the Lord and saying, Lord, I need you, I need you, I desperately need you because I am insignificant and small and powerless and you are the strong and powerful God. Instead of that prayer being heard these days, I hear the prayer which is, God, it would be great if you came. It would be great if you did good work. It would be great if you helped me out here. But if you don't, I got it. I'll be okay. I'll survive. I think God, when he hears, when he hears that, he doesn't hear humility. But he hears arrogance. Church, when you tell God, I'll survive this. I'll survive this calamity in my life. I'll survive this pain. I'll survive this success. I'll survive all of this. And I'll I'll be good. What we are telling God is, I have it under control. God only uses the humble. God only uses the weak. What I love about Bethlehem, what I love about Mary, is when I think about what would bring Jesus into this world, Where should have Jesus been born? By who should Jesus have been born to? And really the answer is, Jesus should have been born in Jerusalem. Jesus should have been born in a place like Rome. Jesus should have been born on the top of a mountain with, with, with all the kings and queens of the earth coming together and Jesus being born in this way, in this fashion that is just magnificent. If anything, Jesus shouldn't have even been born. He should have just come down riding on a cloud and, and just come down with a sword in his hand and been like, I'm Jesus. Here, bow and worship me. And if Jesus has to be born, he shouldn't be born to a 13-year-old girl out of wedlock. He should be born to a queen. He should be born to a princess. He should have been born in a royal family that that could have clothed them in garments of purple and gold and been able to lavish him with all the gifts that are necessary for the child, for the Savior of the world. But what God chose is that our Savior was born by a young girl in a manger in a small, insignificant town. I look at our church. We're not a big church by any means. We're not, we're not you know, a, a large, you know, thousand-person church doing all this stuff. And I think a lot of times we use that as an excuse. Oh, you know what? Someone, if someone needs to, to find Jesus, they should go to a better church. They should go to a bigger church because they got better amenities. They got better They got better you know, people, they got better service times, they got better worship, they got better preaching, they got all these things. And you know what, You're, you are more than welcome to have, have that, that attitude and that, that opinion. But I think I'm beginning to look at our church and I'm hoping and I'm praying. And more than anything, more than us growing in size or, or having a nice building, having nice worship, I think all of these things, I, I, I think my greatest priority now and forevermore is that we would be a servant church. A church willing to serve, lay down our lives for the people that come, for the people that are here to worship with us. Not so that we would get props to Jesus. That we would, we would be like, okay, Jesus, now I can be at your right hand because, man, our church was so faithful and so good. And so now that I, I get to the end of our days and our end of our ministry, we can say, Jesus, we did everything we're supposed to do, so let me be in, in your good graces. no. I pray that we are a humble church, that we are a small church, an insignificant church, so that we can usher in Jesus into this dark and chaotic world. See, Jesus did not demand a red carpet to be laid out for him, Jesus didn't didn't demand that trumpets be playing every time he walked into a room. He desires humility. He desires weakness. So when I look at our church, I want to lay out the red carpet for Jesus by saying, I'm your servant. I'm here to do whatever it is you ask of me. I'm here to live my life only for you and my guarantee to you. My guarantee is if you have that heart, Jesus will come. My guarantee is this. If you have a humble and meek, Gentle heart instead of one that is, is clamoring and saying, I'm the best preacher, I'm the best speaker, I'm the best small group leader, I'm the best Bible study teacher, I'm the best, this, this, and this. Therefore, you need to come to our church because our church has the best worship, it has the best preaching, it has the best fellowship, it has the best chili. Like we just, even though we say these things, the the desire that we have at the end of the day, it's not about us. It's not about how great your church is. It's not about how great your small group is. It's not about how great our worship team is. It's about how great our God is. It's about how great Jesus is. That's why we gather. So I don't care if our church is five people or if it's 5,000 people. What I never want to forget is it's not great It's not great because of you. It's not great because of me. It's great because of him. In your life, your life isn't great because you work so hard and you make so much money and you have such a good family. If you think that's why your life is great, you are sorely mistaken and you will never experience the miracle of God when you begin to understand that your life is great because God loves you and He cares for you and He protects you and He provides you and He's the one that gave you those gifts, those talents, those blessings. Then whatever happens then whatever happens, you know that your life is good because your Father in heaven is good. So no matter what circumstance happens, you maintain your humility as a servant of God that in the good times and the bad times, you, you understand, you recognize it's only because of Him. And those are the times that we understand Jesus and His ministry. And those are the times, those are the times that Jesus comes. My goal for our church is that we would invite Jesus into our world every single day. But I think we're hindered because we're so preoccupied with ourselves. Humility is all about not focusing on yourself but on something else. So my goal is that we focus all of our attention on Jesus. Jesus is not interested in your ability He's interested in your humility. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that I thank you that you have chosen to use the weak and not the strong. So, Father, we, we say we are a small, insignificant church. Lord, I proclaim that we are a small, insignificant church, but we desire to be your servants. We will do whatever it is you call us to do. So even though we are small and insignificant, Lord, use us as you will. And Father, I thank you that that you use Bethlehem. I thank you that you use Mary. That even though they were small and insignificant, you chose them. Father, I pray that our hearts would not be focused so much on success as the world defines, but our focus would be on how great you are, how strong you are, how powerful you are. Father, let us not fall into this misconception that you desire ability, but let us hold on to the truth that humility is greater than ability. We love you, and in Jesus' name we pray.